11. E grains of rice I dropped in my inefficient handling of chopsticks, and in scaring off these hardened, hungry vermin I accidentally upset tea over my bed, whilst at the same moment a clod hopping coolly came in with an elephant tread, with the result that my European reading lamp lost its balance from the top of a tin of native sugar and started a conflagration, threatening to make short work of me and my belongings not to mention that horrid fellow and his inn. During the night the moments throbbed away as I lay on my flea-ridden couch moments which seemed long as hours, and no gleaming rift broke the settled and deepening blackness of my hateful environs. Everything and every place was full of the wearisome, depressing, beauty-blasting commonplace of interior China. Stenches rose upon the damp, dank air, and throughout the night, through the opening of the window, I seemed to gaze out to a disconsolate eternity gaping, empty, and sightly. Waking from my dozing at the hour when judgment sits upon the hearts of men, I sat in ponderous judgment upon all to whom the bangling of the previous day was due. There were the rats and mice, and cats and owls, and creaks and cracks no quiet about the place from night to morning. Then came the barking of dogs, the noises of the cocks and kine, of horses and foals, of pigs and beasts the general wail of the zoological kingdom cows bellowing, duck diplomacy, and much else so that it were not surprising to learn that this distinguished traveler in these contemptible regions was sitting on a broken-down bridge, looking wearily onto the broken-down tower on the summit of a pretty little knoll outside Kunshan, thinking that it were well a score of such were added did their design embrace a warning to evade the place. Having done some twenty league by moonlight, I managed with little difficulty to reach Yankee 6.350 feet by 3.0 meters. This road, which is not the main road to the capital, was purposely chosen, most travelers go through Yanglin, the journey is comprised of pleasant ascents and descents over the latter portion of the great Yuanman Plateau, and a very appreciable difference in the temperature was here noticed, while the people at the northeast of the province, from which I had come, were shivering in their rags and complaining about the price of charcoal, the population here basked under Italian skies in a warm sun, from Wishuho 7.200 feet the country was beautifully wooded with groves of firs and chestnuts, at the end to which I was led the phlegmatic proprietor, after wishing me peace, assumed in ostentatiously the becoming attitude of a customs official, and scrutinized with vigor the whole of my gear, from an empty calvert's tooth powder tin to my Kodak camera, showering particularly condescending felicitations upon my English Barnsby saddle and field glasses thereto attached. His excitement rose at once. He called loudly for his confederates a band of inelegant infidels and bidding them stand one by one at given distances. He gaped at them through the glasses with the hilarity of a schoolboy and the stupidity of an owl. He jumped. He shouted. He waved his arms about me. And handing them back to me with both hands. Shouted deafeningly in my ear that they were quite beyond his come. And then he sucked his teeth disgustingly and spat at my feet. His associates were speechless asses that they were, and could only stare, in horror or impudence I know not, meantime Lao Chan brought tea, and sullied forth immediately to fraternize among old friends, as I drank my tea, after having invited them one by one to join me, slowly and with a fitting dignity, the empty stare, destitute of sense or sincerity, of these six upstanding Chinese gentry, sucking at tobacco pipes as long as their own overfed bodies forced upon me a sense of my unfitness for the unknown conditions of the life of the place, a sense of loneliness and social unsheltered in the sterile waste of their fashionable life, 
They spoke to me subsequently, and I bravely threw at them a Chinese phrase or two, but when the conversation got above my head, I told them, quietly but determinedly, that I could not understand. My English speech seemed vaguely to indicate a sudden collapse of the acquaintance, the opening of a gulf between us, destined to widen to the whole length and breadth of Yankee, swallowing up their erstwhile confidences. One of them facetiously remarked that the gentleman wished to eat his rice, and as they cleared out, falling over each other and the high step at the entrance to the room, I thought that no matter how old they are, Chinese are but little children, but had I treated them as little children I should have found that they were old men. There was in me with all a sense of better rank in the eyes of this super-excellent few who worshipped, in heathen China, the Satan of fashion, as a matter of fact. Their rank had emerged from such long centuries ago that it seemed to me to be so identified with them that they were hardly capable of analysis of people such as myself. As I looked pityingly upon them and the involved simplicity of their immutable natures, I realized an unconquerable feeling of inborn rank and natural elevation in respect to nationality. This island however, against my personal general conception of eastern peoples, but I must admit I felt it this afternoon and so perhaps it is with the majority of Europeans in the Far East, who, because they have no knowledge of the language or a familiarity with national customs and ideas, remain always aliens with the Easterner, they cannot sympathize with him in his joys and sorrows, his likes and dislikes, his prejudice and bias, or understand anything of his point of view, this is one of the hardest lessons for the European traveler in China who has little of the language, because we do not understand him. We call the Chinese a heathen it is easier. Now, to the Chinese his country is the best in the world, his province better than any other of the eighteen, and the village in which he lives the most enviable spot in the province the center of his universe. Speak disparagingly about that little circle, critically or sympathetically, and he is at once up against you. It may develop narrowness of mind and smallness of soul. We Westerners think we know that it does, and the fact that he allows his mental horizon to be bounded by such narrow confines appears to us to render him anything but a desirable citizen and a full-sized man. But no matter, the Chinese, on the other hand, regards as barbarians all those men who have never tasted the bliss of a true home in the empire which is celestial part of this feeling is patriotism and love of country, part is rank conceit. But Englishmen are saying that England is the most Christian country in the world for the very same reason. Rationally speaking, John is the old brother of the world, oldest of any nation by very many centuries, in common with all other travelers and those who have lived with this man, and who have made his nature a serious study. Apart from racial bias, I am perplexed with conundrums which cannot be solved. Some of the conundrums are perhaps superficial, and disappear with a deeper insight into his life. Others are wrought into his being, yet he has a fixedness of character, reaching in some directions to absolute crystallization, he possesses the virility of young manhood and many of the mutually inconsistent traits of late manhood and early youth. I wonder at his ignorance of merest rudimentary political economy but why? This man explored centuries ago the cardinal theories of some of our present-day Western classics. However, I have to teach him the form of the earth and the natural causes of eclipses. He is frightened by ghosts. Burns mock money to maintain his ancestors in the future state. Worships a bit of rusty old iron as an infallible remedy for droughts. I have seen him shoot at clouds from the city walls to frighten away the rain and I despise him for it all. As I revise this copy, 
a rumor is current in the town in which I am resting to the effect that foreigners are buying children and using their heads to oil the wheels of the new Yuanman Railway, and I despise him for believing it. The Chinese will not fight, and I sneer at him, he abhors me because I do. I ridicule his manner of dress, he thinks mine grossly indecent. I consider his flat nose and the plaited hair and shaven skull as heathenish, but the Chinese, eating away with his two new ridiculous chopsticks, looks out from his quick, almond-shaped eyes and considers me still a foreign devil, although he is too cunning to tell me. His opinions of me are founded upon the narrow grounds of vanity and egotism, mine, although I do not admit it even to myself, from something very much akin thereto. I have been looked upon in faraway outposts of the Chinese Empire where foreigners are still unknown, as an example of those human monstrosities which come from the West, a creature of a very low order of the human species, with a form and face and couth, with language a hopeless jargon, and with manners unbearably rude and obnoxious, not that personally answer accurately to this description, reader, any more than you would, but because I happen to be among a people who, as far back as Chinese opinion of foreigners can be traced, have considered themselves of a morality and intellectuality superior to yours and mine. I write the foregoing because it sums up what may be termed the current ideas regarding Europeans, ideas the reverse of complementary, which are the more unfortunate on account of the fact that they are held by the vast majority of a people forming a quarter of the whole human race. This is true. Despite all the reform, these ideas may be, and I trust they are, erroneous, but I know that I must keep in mind the extremely important desideratum in dealing with the Chinese that they look at me my person, my manners, my customs, my theories, my things through Chinese eyes, and although mistaken, misled, reach their own conclusions from their own point of view, this is what they have been doing for centuries, but we know that it all now is being subjected to slow change, the original stock, however, takes on no change whatever and several generations must pass before this transfer of mental vision can be effected, when the Chinese will view all things and all peoples in their true light. Next morning my three men were heavy, the lean fellow I have christened him Shanks, a long, shambling human bag of bones moved about painfully in a listless sort of way, betokening severe rheumatics, his joints needed oil, four or five huge basins of steaming rice and the customary amount of reboiled cabbage, however, bucked him up a bit, and holding up a crooked, bony finger, he indicated intelligently that we had one hundred li to cover, whilst engaged in conversation thus, sounds of early morning revelry reached me from below, my boy, his accustomed serenity now quite disturbed, held threateningly above the head of the yamen runner who had given me a profound coat of the evening previous prior to taking on his duties a length of three inch sugar cane, he evidently meant to flatten him out. This I learned was because this shadower of the August presence wished to take Yang Lin about 60 li away instead of going to Changpo 100 li as I intended. I got him and looked him as squarely in the face as it is possible when a Chinese wants to evade your scrutiny. Told him I wished to go to Changpo, and that I hoped I should have the pleasure of his company thus far. He replied with a grinning smile, which one could easily have taken for a smiling grin. Oh, yes, for in Mandarin. Chanko 100 li for in Mandarin, for in Mandarin, and I thought the incident closed, such is the appalling gullibility of the Englishman in China, we stopped for tea at a small hamlet 10 li out, the place was deserted save for a small starving boy, 
whose chief attention was given to laborious endeavors to make his clothing neat in certain necessary areas. He evidently had never seen a foreigner. As he directed his optics towards me he winced visibly. He walked round me several times, fell over a grimy pail of soap suds, stopped, gazed in enraptured enchantment with parted lips and outstretched arms as if he had begun to suspect what it was before him. To the eye of the beholder, however, he gazed as yet only on vacancy. But just as I was about to attempt self-explanation he was gone, tearing away down the hill as fast as his legs could carry him, the ragged remains of his father's trousers flapping gently in the breeze, as I rose to leave crackers frightened my pony, followed, in a few moments by a howling, hooting, and reasonable rabble from a temple nearby, I found it was the result of a village squabble, I could scarce keep the order of my march as I left the tea shop. So roughly was I handled by the irritated and impatient crowd, and had much ado to refrain from responding wrathfully to the repeated jeers of impudent, half-grown beggars of both sexes who helped to swell the riotous cortege, but through it all none of the insults were meant for me, so Lao Chan told me, and they did not mean to treat me with discourtesy. Trees hollowed out and spanned from field to field served as guppers for irrigation, Shepherds clad in white felt blankets sat huddled upon the ground behind huge boulders, oblivious of time and of the boisterous wind, while their sheep and goats grubbed away on the scanty grass the moorland provided, high up we saw forest fires, making the earth black and desolate, ruins almost everywhere recalled to one's mind the image of a past prosperity, which now were replaced by traces of misery, exterior influences which seemed to breed upon the traveler a deep discouragement. I came across some women mock weeping for the dead, at their elbow two girls were washing clothes, and when little children, catching sight of me, ran to their mothers, the women stopped their hullabaloo, had a good stare at me, exchanged a few words of mutual inquiry, and then resumed their bellowing, soon it became quite warm, and walking was pleasant, I was startled by the Fu Song, a who invited me to go to a neighboring town for tea, my men were far behind, I was at his mercy, so I went, soon I found myself passing through the city gates of Yanglin, the very town I was trying to keep away from, the Yaman fellow turned back at me and chuckled rudely to himself, I insisted that I did not wish to take tea, he insisted that I should I must, he led me to an inn in the main street, arrangements were made to house me, old men and young lads gathered to welcome me as a lost brother, and the Fusong told me graciously that he was going to the magistrate, in cruel English, with many wildly threatening gestures, did I protest, and the people laughed acquiescingly, a tong, a tong, you gaping idiots, I repeated, and it caused more glee, swinging myself past them all, I dragged my stubborn pony through the mob to the gate by which I had entered, my men were not to be found, I did not know the road nor much of the language, I sat down on a granite pillar to undergo an embarrassing half-hour. Presently my men hailed me, and approaching, swore with imposing loftiness at the discomfited guide. My bulldog coolly dropped his loads. The Fusong somehow lost his footing. I yelled, Chizio, go! And with a cheer the caravan proceeded. The following day we were at the capital. Footnotes, footnote Z, I took a pony because I had made up my mind to return into China after I had reached Burma. In Tom Schwanfo a good pony can be bought for, say, L3 in Burma. The same pony would sell for L10. EJD footnote AA. For further excellent descriptions of the Chinese nature I refer the reader to Chester Holcomb's China, 
past and present. EJD Chapter XIV. Yuan Manfu. The Capital. Access to Yuan Manfu. Concentrated Reform. Tribute to Xiliang. Conservatism and Progress. The Tonkin Yuan Man Railway. The Yuan Man Army. Authors' views in 1909 and 1910 contrasted. Phenomenal forward march. And what it means. Danger of too much drill. International aspect on the frontier. The police. Street improvements. Visit to the jail. And a description. The young pretender to the Chinese throne. How the prison is conducted. The schools. Visit to the university. And a description. Right among the students. Visit to the agricultural school. And a description. Silk industry of Yuan Man. Yuan Man food today is as accessible as Peking. After many weary years the Tonkin Yuan Man Railway is now an accomplished fact. And links this capital city with Haiphong in three days. Reform concentrates at the capital. The man who visited Yuan Man Fu 20, or even 10 years ago, would be astounded. Were he to go there now, at the improvements visible, on every hand, a building on foreign lines was then a thing unknown. And the conservative viceroy, Sen Kong Pao, the decapitator in his time of thousands upon thousands of human beings, would turn in his grave if he could behold the utter annihilation of his pet, Feng Shui, which has followed in the wake of the good works done by the late love viceroy. Xi Liang. The name of Xi Liang is revered in the province of Yuan Man as the most able man who has ever ruled the two provinces of Yuan Man and Kui Chao. A man of keen intellectuality and courtly manner, and notorious as being the only Mongolian in the service of China's government. I lived in Yuan Man Fu for several weeks at a stretch, and since then have made frequent visits, and knowing the enormous strides being made towards acquiring Occidental methods. I now find it difficult to write with absolute accuracy upon things in general, but I have found this to be the case in all my travels. What island or seems to be accurate today of any given thing in a given place is wrong tomorrow under seemingly the same conditions, and although no theme could be more tempting, and no subject author wider scope for ingenious hypothesis and profound generalization, one has to forego much temptation to color if he would be accurate of anything he writes of the Chinese. Eminent sinologues agree as to the impossibility of the conception of the Chinese mind and character as a whole. So glaring are the inconsistencies of the Chinese nature, and as one sees for himself in this great city, particularly in official life, the business-like practicability on the one hand and the utter absurdity of administration on the other, in all modes and methods, one is almost inclined to drop his pen in disgust at being unable to come to any concrete conclusions. Of no province in China more than of Yuan Man is this true. Reform and immovable conservatism go hand in hand. Men of the most dissimilar ambitions compose the core diplomatique, and are willing to join hands to propagate their main beliefs, and when one writes of progress in railways, in the army, in jails, in schools, in public works, in no matter what one is ever confronted by that dogged immutability which characterizes the older school. So that in writing of things you and names in this great city it is imperative for me to state their facts as they stand now, and make little comment. The railway the Tonkin Yuan Man Railway, linking the interior with the coast, is one of the world's most interesting engineering romances. This artery of steel is probably the most expensive railway of its kind, from the constructional standpoint. In some districts 7,000 pounds per mile was the cost. 
and it is probable that £6,000 sterling per mile would not be a bad estimate of the total amount appropriated for the construction of the line from a loan of area code 200000000 francs asked for in 1898 by the Colonial Council in connection with the program for a network of railways in and about French Indochina. To Laoke there are no less than 175 bridges. The completion of this line realizes in part the ambition of a celebrated Frenchman, who once a printer, tis said, in Paris dropped into the political flower bed, and blossomed forth in due course as Governor General of Indochina, when Paul de Rere, for it was he, went east in 1897, he felt it his mission to put France, politically and commercially, on as good a footing as any of her arrivals, notably Great Britain. It did not take him long to see that the best missionaries in his cause would be the railways. At the time of writing June, 1910 I cannot but think that profit on this railway will be a long time coming, and there are some in the capital who doubt whether the commercial possibilities of UN man justified this huge expenditure on railway construction, whilst authorities differ. I personally believe that the ultimate financial success of the venture is assured. There are markets crying out to be quickly fed with foreign goods and it is my opinion that the French will be the suppliers of those goods. British enterprise is so weak that we cannot capture the greater portion of the growing foreign trade, and must feel thankful if we can but retain what trade we have, and supply those exports with which the French have no possibility of competing. The military the foreigner in Yuan who can never rest unless he is used to the sounds of the bugle and the hustling spirit of the men of war. In standard works on Chinese armaments no mention is ever made of the Yuan army and statistics are hard to get, but it is evident that the cult of the military stands paramount, and it has to be conceded, even by the most pessimistic critics of this backward province, that the new troops are sufficiently numerous and sufficiently well organized to crush any rebellion, this must be counted a very fair result, since it has been attained in about two years, a couple of years ago Yuan Man had practically no army none more than the military ragtags of the old school, whose chief weapon of war was the opium pipe. But now there are 10,000 troops not units on paper, but men in uniform well drilled for the most part and of excellent physique, who could take the field at once. The question of the UN man army is one of international interest. The French are on the south, Great Britain on the west. On June 2, 1909, I rode out to the magnificent training ground, then being completed, and on that date wrote the following in my diary. I watched for an hour or two some thousand or so men undergoing their daily drill typical tin soldiery and a military sham, only with the merest notion of matters military were most of the men conversant, and alike in ordinary marching when it was most difficult for them even to maintain regularity of step or in more complicated drilling, there was a lack of the right spirit, no go, no gusto scores and scores of them running round doing something, going through a routine with the knowledge that when it was finished they would get their rice and be happy. Everyone who possesses but a rudimentary knowledge of the Chinese knows that he troubles most about the two meals every day should bring him, and this seems to be the pervading line of thought of seven-eighths of the men I saw on the pogong at drill, officers strutting about in peacock fashion, with a sword dangling at their side, showed no inclination to enforce order, and the rank and file knew their methods so that the disorder and haphazardness of the whole thing was absolutely mutual. Whilst I was on the field gazing in anything but admiration on the scene, I was ordered out by one of the coffee-clad officers in a most unceremonious manner. Seeing me, he shouted at the top of his thick voice, Chuku, 
Chukwan expression meaning go out, commonly used to drive away dogs, and simultaneously waved his sword in the air as if to say, another step, and I'll have your head, and, of course, there being nothing else to do, I chukwan, but in a fashion befitting the dignity of an English traveler, the reorganization of the army, with the acceleration of warlike preparedness, has the advantage that it appeals to the embryonic feeling of national patriotism, and affords a tangible expression of the desire to be on terms of equality with the foreigner. That officer never had a prouder moment in his life than when he ordered a distinguished foreigner from the drilling ground, of which he was for the time the lordly controller, and it may be added that the foreigner can remember no occasion when he felt smaller, or more completely shriveled. Whilst it is safe to infer that the motives that underlie the significant access of activity in military matters in UN Man differ in no way from those which have led to the feverish increase in armaments in other parts of the world, such ideas that have yet been formed on actual preparations for possible war are most crude. On paper the appointments in the army and the accuracy of the figures of the complement of rank and file admit of no question, but the practical utility of their laborers is quite another matter and a matter which does not appear to produce among the army officials any great mental disturbance in their delusion that they are progressing. UN man is in need of military reform, reform which will embrace a start from the very beginning, and one of the first steps that should be taken is that those who are to be in the position of administering training should find out something about Western military affairs, and so be in a position of knowing what they are doing. The above was my conscientious opinion in the middle of last year. Now in June of 1910 I have to write of enormous improvements and revolutions in the drilling, in the armaments, in the equipment, in the general organization of the troops and the conduct of them. Yuan Man is still peculiarly in her transition stage, which, while it has many elements of strength and many menacing possibilities, contains, more or less, many of the old weaknesses, all matters, such as her financial question, her tariff question, her railway question her mining question, are still, in the air, the unknown in the equation, as it were but her army question is settled, there is a definite line to be followed here, and it is being followed most rigidly, come what will, her army must be safe and sound, China is determined to work out the destiny of you and man herself, and she is working hard the West has no conception how hard so as to be able to be in a position of safeguarding vigorously, if necessary her own borders, one question arises in my mind, however, should there be a rebellion, would the soldiers remain true, this is vital to you and man, skirmishings on the French border more or less recently have shown us that soldiers are waddlers in that area, the rank and file are chosen from the common people, and one would not be surprised to find, should trouble take place fairly soon, while they are still raw to their business, the soldiers turn to those who could give them most. It has been humorously remarked that in case of disturbances the first thing the Chinese Tommy would do would be to shoot the officers for treating him so badly and for drilling him so hard and long. What is true of the capital in respect to military progress I found to be true also of Taylaifu. A couple of years ago a company of drilled soldiers arrived there as a nucleus for recruiting units for the new army. Soon 1.500 men were enlisted. They were to serve a three years term were to receive four dollars per month, and were promised good treatment. The officers drilled them from dawn to dusk, deserters were therefore many, necessitating the detail of a few heads coming off to avert the trouble of losing all the men. It cost the men about a dollar or so for their rice, 
so that it will be readily seen that, with a clear profit of $3 as a monthly allowance, they were better off than they would have been working on their land. Officers received from 40 to 60 tails a month. Temples here were converted into barracks a sign in itself of the altered conditions of the times and I visited some extensive buildings which were being erected at a cost of 80,000 gold dollars. Military progress in this backward province is as great as it has been anywhere at any time in any part of the Chinese Empire. The police until a few years ago, as China was kept in law and order without the necessary evil of a standing army, so did Yuan Manfu slumber on in the Chinese equivalent for peace and plenty, as they now are, and taking into consideration that they were all picked from the rawest material. The police force of this capital is as able a body of men as are to be found in all western China. Probably the Metropolitan Police of dear old London could not be reinforced from their ranks, but disciplined and well-ordered they certainly are with all. Swords seem to take the place of the English bludgeon, and a peaked cap, barabond with gold, is substituted for the old-fashioned helmet of blue, and if the time should ever come, with international rights, one Englishman will be run in, in the Empire. The sallow physiognomy and the dangling pigtail alone will be unmistakable proofs to the victim, even in heaviest intoxication, that he is not being handled by policemen of his own kind that island if the Yuan Man police shall ever have made strides towards the attainment of home police principles. However, in their place these men have done good work. Thieving in the city is now much less common, and gambling, although still rife under cover when will the Chinese eradicate that inherent spirit? is certainly being put down. One of the features of their work also has been the improvement they have effected in the appearance of the streets. Old customs are dying, and at the present time if a man in his untutored little ways throws his domestic refuse into the place where the gutter should have been, as in olden days, he is immediately pounced upon, reprimanded by the policeman on duty, and fined somewhat stiffly. The jail a great fuss was made about me when I went to visit the governor of the prison one wet morning. He met me with great ostentation at the entrance, escorting me through a clean courtyard, on either side of which were a pretty flower beds and plots of green turf, to a reception room. There was nothing, quad-like, about the place. This reception room, furnished on a semi-occidental plan, overlooked the main prison buildings, contained four in glass windows draped with white curtains, was scrupulously clean for China, and had magnificent hanging scrolls on the whitewashed walls. Tea was soon brewed, and the governor, wishing to be polite and sociable, told me that he had been in Yuan Manfu for a few months only, and that he considered himself an extremely fortunate fellow to be in charge of such an excellent prison one of the finest in the kingdom. He assured me, after we had drunk each other's health I sincerely trust that the cute, courteous old chap will live a.